0: Welcome back to the Mysteria Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host Marcus Da Silva, and this is part two of my conversation with Mr. Jim Shorten. So we start this podcast where we left off from part one. We talk about one zero school and talk a little bit more about Mac vsog, but the majority of this episode is talking about basically just all the other crazy things that uh, Jim has done in his life. Uh, The many, many adventures. And the last 15 minutes or so of this podcast, I pretty much forgot that we were being recorded. (laughs) So we were just kind of shooting the shit and just having a good time. Just talking about a whole bunch of random stuff. And it was just so much fun. And I, I was a bit unsure actually whether or not to leave it in or edit that bit out. But I just thought now nah, we were having a good time and it was fun. And there's some good laughs at the end of that, um, of the kind of the conclusion of this episode. So I figured, ah, let's, let's leave it there. Um, so I, I had such a great time and it was, just I can't describe the the amount of different things that he's done. I mean, you're about to hear it, but um, just to kind of go over some of these. So we talk about one zero school and a little bit of Mac V Sog. Then we get into his time as a para rescue jumper. Uh, many missions that we discuss, uh, including the the one mission in particular that jumped out to me where they were a thousand miles off of the coast of the Pacific Ocean, which was insane. He also worked with NASA for the first three shuttle landings. He was involved in the rescue at Mount St. Helens, and we also discuss his professional pursuits in chiropractics and radiology, and then his current occupation as a meteorite hunter and trader. And about 30 other topics that we (laughs) decided to cover and, uh, laugh about and joke about. Uh, so this episode I think is kind of the, the perfect embodiment of this podcast, which is talk about anything and everything, as long as it's fun and interesting and never a dull moment with Jim. And it was just such a pleasure to speak with him and, uh, really excited for you to hear this episode. So without me rambling any further, I hope you really enjoy this episode with Jim. Thank you very much. So um,
1: about, yeah, wherever you want to start.
0: Yeah, so I think let's, let's start with one zero School, because I, I know we, I think we mentioned it, but I don't think we got into it. So um, I think we'll just kind of talk about that. So uh, you went through it and you yeah. taught it?
1: Yes. Okay. Uh, in the beginning, I went through uh, one zero school down at Longton. It's B fifty three, and uh, a guy named Moose Monroe. I can't remember Moose's first name, but uh, everybody just called him Moose. And he went ahead. He was my lane grader. So when we went through, and I learned an awful lot from Moose. He was really a smart, very smart soldier. Taught me a lot of stuff in the field. You know, a lot of the implements that we use, like for recording sound, you know, the, like we have these things you put in the ground, they look like a blade of grass and it picks up sound and w- what people are talking about. We had these little dog poop things that look like dog poop. You put them on the trail and they would pick up people. We put them next to like logs where people might sit down and talk, but he taught me a lot. So when I went through there, then I went up to, you know, back to CCC in Kantum and um, ran all my missions there. And then mm-hmm. at the end of, uh, of that, I had a pretty rough mission with the Co-Grade 4, they asked me if I wanted to go down and teach for a while, and so I said, "Sure, I'll go down and teach." So I went down to teach, and um, uh, I taught in Phil, X you know, parachuting. That's where I made a lot of jumps. I made nineteen parachute jumps in Vietnam. Three of them are free fall, and uh, they're all at Long Ton, except for I think two or three, which is at Dong Batin, which is the the Vietnamese Special Forces Luc Lam Doc Biet School, and uh, it's Dong Dong is just. Um, just to the west and north of Cameron Bay. So, um, yeah, we had a guy in the A-team that wanted to go to jump school there. So they put him through the jump school and they asked me to be a stick kicker to jump with him and stuff. So I did. Uh, The other thing I did there was I taught, you know, strings, you know, ropes, you know, stable rig, taught ladders um, and um, different techniques for inserting. You know, like you have you have a bunch of helicopters and what they do is they, they they're all flying like this and then one will go down the other one will go over it and the other one will go over that one and this one and you do it with like three or four helicopters and cuz you've got two insertion ships you got one chase ship and you got one medical ship uh so they'll do that sort of thing and it throws the enemy off cuz they don't know where you got out the other thing we could do was um we'd have a bunch of guys in a helicopter and then we'd fly over and we'd drop the ladders and they, what happens is the enemy starts shooting. I mean, the good guys on the ground start shooting. And so what they do is they come over and they drop ladders and the guys get out of the helicopter and they climb down the ladders. And then they take off and the enemy thinks that that's the team leaving. So they'll go into that area and um, look to see if anybody's been injured. And then you can take a prisoner that way. So that was one of our techniques for taking prisoners. The other thing you want to do is you want to let the enemy know where you are and have them come to you. And then you just go ahead and get rid of the rest and take whoever you want, you know, as a prisoner. Mm -hmm. So that was another technique. Um, But there was a lot of techniques, a stay-behind technique, where you go in and uh, you shoot up the area. And um, how does that stay behind? Oh, yeah, they have a firefighter or something like that, and the guys leave, and a couple of guys will stay behind. and They'll take a prisoner when they come in. Pretty much similar, very similar to the helicopter technique. So. But I did that. I took prisoners, did taught prisoner snatches, infill, exfil techniques. And that was pretty much it. And then I was a lane grader. I went out. That's where I went out with John Caviani that time. And uh, we were doing, uh, he was going through one zero school. And there was five of us left on the ground. There was only four ropes. So him and I came out on one rope. And uh, that's how that one worked. And so, but and after that, what I did is um, when I had the mission where I had to go in and get the body out. You know, we hooked him up. What I, after he was killed on the ropes, what I started doing was hooking the rope to each of us. I had one rope come down. We'd hook here and the other side, hooked would hook to the other guy. Did that all the way around until I got the hook up here. And some guys are heavier than other guys. So it would be off balance. But if one of the ropes broke, they still got you. Right. So I did that. I used to do that technique as well.
0: I you know I'm kind of surprised that didn't happen more frequently than it did considering that often you would be getting in pretty intense firefights getting lifted out on the ropes right
1: well a lot of times they you know it might have just been a lucky shot or something but uh, a lot of times they they try to bring the helicopter down so they'll be shooting at the helicopter so if the bullet hits that rope it's going to cut it right there Mm -hmm. so but um yeah it's um I'm surprised it didn't happen more. One of the biggest problems we had is before we had the stable rig, we had what was called the um Maguire rig. Hmm. And the Maguire rig was a big loop and you like a, a saddle and you sat in it and you put a a, a, a like a, a a ring on your hand to hold it hold your hand there in case you fell out of it you'd be hanging from your hand and when we'd go in, like to go get pilots or something, some of the guys would put it underneath their arms, like you see in the movies, Mm -hmm. like in the Coast Guard has, they'd put those collars on, and they'd hold on to it, and they couldn't hold on to it. What would happen is their arms would go to sleep, and they'd fall out of it. So that was one of the other problems they had. So they finally got rid of that McGuire rig and came up the stable. The other thing they had was called a Hanson rig, and it was a big loop, and I carried one for prisoners. So what you do is you put it over your shoulder, You reach behind and grab the other one, bring it through, and then reach under your legs and grab it and bring it through, and then hook a a snap link into it or a carabiner, and just hook it up to the rope, and you can't fall out of it. The worst would happen is you get kind of scrunched a little bit, but um, I would use that. I carried that for prisoners because they can't fall out of it. And if I had to take a prisoner, I never had to do it this way. But if I had to take a prisoner, I can get him out of there. Just have the chopper come over, drop a rope, hook it up and get him out of there. And then we can go do our mission and carry on or whatever.
0: Well, I think that McGuire rig, I think that was the one that uh, Tilt fell out of. Right. I I think that was the one.
1: No, I um, was that. No, I don't think that was. I think he was on the stable rig. Oh, he was. I think so. And uh, no, 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 I think you're right. I think it wasn't a McGuire rig. What happened was it came down to his knees.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah. And he was holding onto that and, and finally mm-hmm. went down. Cause I don't see how you can fall out of a stable rig. Yeah. I don't see how you can.
0: Mm-hmm. There
1: have been guys that have hooked up to one side and the chopper took off and they couldn't get the other side hooked up, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but um And with you guys taking uh, POWs, would that be, uh, would you guys have the, like a bonus or you get like a a three-day leave or something? Because I remember Tilt would always joke about how uh, he could never get, they never made it back alive. Something would always go wrong.
1: Yeah, Uh, they, um, we had, um, we got $300, I think it was $300 and five days off. That's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you took a prisoner, that was in SOG, though. And yeah. if you got a Caucasian prisoner, I think it was $10,000. I think it could have been less, but I, I don't remember.
0: Did anyone pull that I off?
1: Um, I believe there was one person that did get a, car- a Caucasian guy. And I think he turned out to be a Czechoslovakian mercenary. Um, but um, yeah, I don't. We had a guy that took a prisoner and brought it out. If you see a picture of Bob Howard carrying that guy, I remember when, in fact, I've been credited for that picture. I don't remember taking it, but I went through my pictures and I had a few pictures of it, so I don't know. But uh, yeah, that Bob Howard always wanted to take a prisoner, but he would stand behind the tree and when they came down, he hit him over the head with an axe handle, but he always hit him too hard, (laughs) you know, which is kind of sad, really.
0: (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but (laughs) it's kind of funny. Yeah, Bob
1: always wanted to take a prisoner, but... um, yeah, I mean, if you knew Bob, he was a real gentleman. He was just a really soft-spoken, really nice guy, but he just got too anxious. He was afraid he wouldn't hit him hard enough.
0: <laughs> well, that makes it funnier, too, especially because he is like a nice guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you ever listen to him talk, he's like a like a Southern gentleman, you know? Right. It's ma'am, no ma'am, you know? He's just a real nice guy.
0: That's good.
1: Uh, I, I kind of miss him.
0: And, and so with you, because uh, you were pretty successful at taking POWs, like what did you attribute that to uh, just – being yeah, in vietnam <laughs> being in vietnam when i was in vietnam i
1: took uh i think i think i took 12 12 30 yeah i took 12 prisoners when i was on the a team right. but they were easy to take though uh, in vietnam <laughs> yeah i mean like i said it's a reverse of what's going on in laos cambodia mm-hmm. you know in laos cambodia you're in their area and there's like seven of you and you got all these thousands of guys in Vietnam, there's like seven of those guys and there's thousands of Americans around them. So it's kind of it's just the opposite way around. So it was easy to take a prisoner. Mm-hmm. I remember one time we were we had a we, we had a camp get overrun. New T got overrun. So and I was a reaction force for it. And um, but we knew there was a hospital up in the hill somewhere and we wanted to find out where it was. So I volunteered to go in there and take a prisoner and find out where it was. And so I went in and I took something like, I don't know, five prisoners, six prisoners. Uh, There was a bunch of them coming up. But the um, one was a, I can't remember if she was a doctor or a nurse. She was NVA. And there was another guy that was an NVA and the rest were Viet Cong that they were training like nurses, helpers or nurses or something. So, but I took them, we found out where everything was. And uh, another time I took one in an ambush and he got shot in the leg and I took him, I took him on down to the hospital in Cameron Bay. And he ended up, you know, the, they, the Americans didn't want to treat him. You know, I don't know what to do. I almost got a fight with the doc. Um, he was a 14 year old kid and he actually thought we were going to eat him. I was giving him some morphine to help him with the pain because there's a broken femur and the broken femur is the most painful fracture you can have in your body, because there's so much muscle, it just pulls everything together. But I took him down there. And I went down a week later, and his leg was gone. I'm going, geez, what happened to his leg? And he goes, well, he got gangrene. I went down a week after that, and he was gone. He goes, oh, he died. I'm going, what do you mean he died? He only had a bullet wound in his leg, you know. And so um, this doctor sat there telling me that, uh, you know, like, you know, how many Americans I see dying because of people like him? I go, you asshole. I said, you know how many more Americans going to die because you just killed my friggin' intelligence? I said, he was a 14 year old kid. I looked, you know, we almost got a fight and the nurses broke us up. But I told him, I said, you know, he was 14 years old. You can live with that. So much for your code of ethics, you know? So, but anyway, so that was that. And I don't know if I took any, let me see, what other prisoners did I take? I know I took some others, but I, I don't, I don't, I can't remember.
0: One well, down in one zero school as well, right?
1: Yeah, there's three of them down at one zero school.
0: Yeah,
1: I didn't count the kids, you know they
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: they're just yeah. kids. <laughs> they just have them. They just bring them along and make it look like family.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, and you, you know what was interesting as well, because I was thinking about um, the last time we recorded, because uh, I was thinking back to the fact that you spent it was twenty two months in Vietnam the first time that you got there.
1: Yeah, when I was with the Navy over there, I, yeah. I was there for 22 months.
0: And, and I was just kind of wondering, like, d- did you think that, because 22 months is a fairly long time to, you know, kind of understand a bit of the people and the culture and, you know, at least get a, a feel for it. um, mm-hmm. When you went back with SOG, um, just that experience, d- did you find that it helped you and, and the teams in any way? Like, did it have a, any immediate... Um, benefits as far as just understanding.
1: Well, when I was there for the twenty-two month deal, I was driving trucks. I was in the Navy back then. I was working with the CBs, and I was driving trucks. And um, I had a girlfriend, and she taught me how to speak Vietnamese, so I had a working knowledge of the language, and so that helped me a lot. And I, I mean, I got, I got messed up over there too when I was in the Navy. I was driving. They, the, I think it was in '66. I can't remember what month it was, but in 1966, they dropped a. The uh, The enemy were dropping rockets into the Air Force base there, and they dropped a, a rocket into the bomb storage, and it was pretty nasty. Anyway, and when they were getting hit, I took my truck and I drove out to the villages trying to get the civilians out of the area, and when they blew up the bomb storage, it actually picked up a five-ton dump truck, picked it up over some trees, and dropped it into the middle of a barracks, but I don't think anybody was in the barracks. I think they all took cover from because of the rouser that were hitting beforehand, uh, but it blew my truck off the road and I, the truck landed up on side of me, but it was real loamy, sandy soil, so I didn't get hurt too bad. I messed up my ankle and my knee. And, um, and uh, that was when I was, uh, if there was another show where I did and the guy starts off where I turned down four Purple Hearts, but that was the first Purple Heart when I was in China Beach Hospital. I uh, I woke up and there was a Purple Heart sitting there and I refused it. I said, I don't want it. And this Marine that lay next to me in the bed said, you earned it. And I said, no, no. I said, it's for people that lose their eyesight, arms, legs or life. I said, I don't I don't want it. So I turned it away and they took it away. And I don't know if it was in my records or not, but uh, but that was at the China Beach. And then from there, I ended up another t- I was in the China Beach Hospital twice. The other time was for um, uh, the enemy poisoned our water. And uh, I got a really bad infection in my ears and my skin and everything. And uh, I ended up going from China beach to um, Clark air force base in the Philippines to Naha Okinawa and went to the hospital up there. They were going to send me home. And I said, no, I, I refused to go home. I wanted to go back to Vietnam. So I went back again, stayed there. So.
0: I want to ask you as well um, about the, not so much about 10 school but just in general um cuz we kind of glanced over that last last episode as well where you ran you run one mission and okay now you're the 10 so you just right away uh put in that position yeah. um but just cuz that was the thing with Tilt um cuz he was the first uh saw guy that I've spoken to um and of course you know we talked very extensively about the the idea of being a 10 and you know, you're responsible for, I mean, the lives of your men. I mean, it's really all on you. Um, And just that type of responsibility and, you know, what that feels like to, you know, have to take care of these guys. And and you, in many ways, like care for them more than your own life, because they're your team, like you're responsible for keeping them safe. Um, So I was just wondering, like, maybe just to kind of go a little bit deeper into it, like, were you thinking to yourself, like, Oh my god <laughs> but, What's going you know, on? <laughs> well you know
1: when i was on the a team i ran about 37 missions so i knew how to call in airstrikes i knew how to call in uh cover you know have people come in, helicopters coming in to get us out i knew all that and i knew my tactics and everything from there uh because i don't even know how many firefights i got into there but um uh anyway from from when i went to one zero school i mean when i went to ccc up in contum uh, they knew that. In fact, I ran that first mission with, uh, uh Dan Stur before I went to one zero school. Right. Okay. It was after that, that I went to one zero school and, uh, Dan decided he didn't want to run after that. And so then they came across and told me, he said, why don't you take the team? And I, I only ran one mission. So they said, well, we feel you're ready. So I said, well, I'll give it a shot. But, um, I was telling Tilt, you know, I says, you know, when I used to fly out there in those on those missions, when we are flying in and I'd sit there and look at my team. And the whole team has got this look on their face, like because it's the worst time is when you're going in and coming out because they can blow you out of the sky. And um, I told Tilt, I said, you know, I'd look at those guys and I'm going, what the heck am I doing here? You know, like I got their lives in my hand. You know what I says? If I make a mistake, we could all die and stuff like that. And Phil told me he says we all felt the same way. You know, everybody feels the same way, and and it's just that uh, you're the guy that took it upon yourself to be the team leader, and you knew how to operate the team. So and that that's um, that's probably the the most uh, important thing is be calm in a firefight. You can't be a team leader and then cower in the middle of a firefight. You can't do that. You've got to be able to move and think fast and do your job i mean it's it's uh, more than a priority i mean it's you've got to be able to think really quick so and that's that's pretty much what a team leader is i mean they they've got a lot of weight on you you got a lot of weight on your shoulders not only for the team but my gosh the the helicopters and the fast movers and everything else around you you know, because you get in a battle with 350 enemy, you better know your stuff.
0: You know, and I was wondering as well, like the fact that you, when you were younger, um, running away from home and spending so much time uh, just having to be self-reliant in that way, um, that that thinking on your feet, obviously, once you're in combat, you know, it's a whole other level, um, you know, and you kind of have to learn as you go and you have teammates and, team members to help you with that learning curve as well of course but I don't know like I'm just kind of curious just the fact that um did that have a an effect on you as far as just kind of that sense of calm that you mentioned
1: um I don't know I think maybe a little bit because um I was raised pretty much in Colorado in the mountains. So I learned a lot of uh, stealth techniques, you know, looking for deer and stuff. Um, I had a dog, Mush. And Mush and I used to go up in the mountains all the time by ourselves. And sometimes we'd spend the night, you know, and come back the next day. I did that a lot on the weekends. Uh, I did it mainly just to keep away from the house because of uh, couldn't get along with my stepfather. So, But he did teach me a lot of stuff, you know, but... I think he was uh, regretted the fact that he married somebody with children, you know, and so we just it just didn't work out. They ended up getting a divorce after I ran away from home. And I had my mother sign for me and I had a priest sign for me to, to go in the Navy when I was old enough because I had to be 17. And then I had to go for that citizenship deal. So mm-hmm. they ran that through real quick so I can get my citizenship and go in the Navy and high school. <laughs> yeah. And I well, that I, that was after the Navy. Because when I came back from the Navy, I wanted to go into special forces and you, you don't, you can get in the army with a GED, but you can't get in the special forces. You got to have a diploma, which is kind of weird in a way, because getting a GED right now is harder than getting a high school diploma. I mean, look at all the kids, you know, you got so many kids coming in the front door, high school, they're pushing them out the back door and those guys don't even know how to read and write and do arithmetic, you know? so getting a GED is real hard my daughter quit school she she's a she has a eidetic memory yeah she's really smart and so she was bored with school and so she quit school and she took her GED and I told her I said you know I'm really proud of you I said you know 50% of the kids out of high school can't pass a GED <laughs> you know, that's a fact <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's probably higher now <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah because everything's woke now everything's woke you know so it's, it's crazy what's going on in school. So.
0: And your daughter turned out okay. So,
1: oh, yeah, she, yeah. she's still really, really smart. I mean, <laughs> she's really smart,
0: you know, but she works for the sheriff's department now. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, as you go through that whole time, and now how long were you actually in uh, MACV SOG? How, how long were you there for?
1: I think I was in MACV SOG probably about a. Uh, maybe a a, a 13 months, maybe, maybe 14 months, something like that.
0: And once it was time, once that time came to an end, did you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm okay with this ending or, you know, what was your thought process on that?
1: Oh, well, every time you go on a mission, it's like, you know, what am I doing here? You know, (laughs) especially when you go out on bright lights, it's like, man, this is insane. You know, you know, because but, um, I remember being on the ground when uh, R.T. Pennsylvania got blown out of the sky, Yeah. you know, and I, and to, even today, I still hear that schoolhouse schoolhouse. Can you read me school? That was their code name for the mission was schoolhouse. And um, you know, it, it's just, you're gone that fast. Yeah. You know, the whole team was wiped out.
0: Yeah, it, was, it was a seven man team.
1: I don't, I think they had three Americans and the rest were indig, but I don't know how many indig, indigenous they had. Yeah.
0: Cause I, I was talking to a friend uh, yesterday, actually. Um, Cause I was like, uh, you know, Oh, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, I got a podcast with Jim, you know, doing a second one, blah, blah, blah. And you know, talking about it. And then obviously then we ended up talking about, uh, you know, Dale and Roger and John and you know, all the stuff that I've learned through from them through these podcasts and what's so like, I don't, I don't even really know what, what the right words are for it, but the, I guess the thing that always stops and, uh, makes me pause is when you think about like you think about that team right and you know they get blown up out of the sky and you think you know how does that happen when how many times have you guys flown in and out and been okay right and and you get on the ground and sometimes it goes well and sometimes it like it's it's such a chaotic thing to try and make sense of
1: well, sometimes, you know, like I was talking to Johnny Plaster about it, and I said, you know, sometimes you, I've had dry missions where you go into a dry hole and, heck, you can have a barbecue and a band playing and nobody shows up. <laughs> right. <laughs> and other times you can't even move. You can't even move 100 feet or 10 feet. I mean, I've stayed in position where I could right. not move for a day because the enemy were so thick around us. I've had the enemy walk like three, four feet away from me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought they were going to hear my heart beating. <laughs> Yes, it yes, that, gets that close sometimes.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. I've seen them down at the bottom. I mean, i would be on the side of a hill and they'll be coming through, banging sticks and yelling and screaming and, you know, and trying to chase you out of the bushes like you're a wild animal. And they have dogs coming after you and stuff like that, you know. So,
0: yeah. It's, did, it's, did you have a lot of run ins with uh, dogs? Just the one time. One Somebody time too many or? Too. Huh? One time too many or? <laughs>
1: Well, they didn't find us, which was kind of cool. We did lay some uh, CS powder behind us on the ground, but we don't. I don't think they ever came after us with the dogs. We just saw them down at the bottom of the hill going through with dogs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember Tilt was uh, talking about his. I think he had a few dog experiences, and yeah, t- to this day, yeah, I can't stand dogs. It's quite funny. Yeah, because
1: once they get a whiff of you, it's kind of hard to get away from it. You know, what you can do is run. Even if you run up the river or something, which you, you you can get caught going up a river. You never walk on streams upstreams are on trails you just don't want to do that yeah just too exposed way too exposed yeah they're going to be waiting for you Mm -hmm. so and a lot of times you can go through the trail like a lot of guys will go up trail one at a time but yeah i I, one of the techniques i did was the whole team would get on the trail and we all go through one time the whole team would go across parallel each you know side by side Mm -hmm. and um sometimes that would work it depends a lot of times on the trail and what you're thinking you know what you think might happen If you can do it on a bend or something like that, you know, that'd be a good thing because nobody can see if you're up in here, hopefully. So that might work, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the best time you get captured. The best time they escape too is on a curve. When you're going around a corner or something, you get you get down because if you're in front of the curve, the people behind you can't see you Mm -hmm. and the people in front of you aren't looking at you so you can get out. So one of those techniques,
0: right? And so by the time that you leave, um, what do you do next?
1: Uh, when I left Vietnam or left?
0: Yeah. yeah once you left, uh, SOG.
1: Yeah. When I left SOG, um, oh, well, I went down to one zero school. And then after that one mission, that POW snatch, uh, when I came back in, it was, um, um, uh, what was his name? Um, he made a free fall with me too. Uh, ah Oh, I can't. But his license number was D eight, and he had all kinds of combat stars on his wings. I mean, he made every possible combat jump you could make, Korea and and Second World War. Uh, but sometimes there was two jumps going on at one time, so he could obviously only make one. Um, R. Glenn was his name, and uh, so when I came back, Glenn went ahead and uh, had two guys grab me, marched me to my room, pack up my stuff, and they marched me right down the Ton Air Base in Saigon and made sure I got it on the airplane. (laughs) I missed my flight coming home twice.
0: (laughs) Well, that that sounds intentional or accidental.
1: No, it was intentional. (laughs) I knew I was supposed to go home. (laughs) Yeah. But I wasn't about to miss out on a snap, POW snatch. (laughs) Right,
0: yeah. And then, so now how old are you when you come back
1: home? Uh, I went into special forces when I was 21 and so i was in there for what 3 years active so what, 24 when i came back but i joined uh, the 12th reserve group and that was underwater operations so i went to, the whole team went to scuba school together so we finished scuba school came back and we did a lot of you know stuff from there we did we went down to panama and worked with the panamanian Gorillas. we went to okinawa went to the philippines we did a lot of stuff together um but then uh, that was when I was a police officer in the San Jose PD, and so then I ended up uh, quitting the PD, and my wife left me, so I got a divorce. She was a good gal and all. It was more my fault, not hers. Um, so then we, um, uh, then I, I was we were teaching uh, the pararescue, the uh, Air Force pararescue guys, the PJ's. We were teaching them night vision devices and submachine guns, and uh, I started talking to them. And they told me, why don't you come on down, and see what we got? So I went on down to their base and it just blew my mind. <laughs> Man, they had some equipment and they were doing something every friggin' week, almost every day. They were doing something. So I went down, and I went back to my team and I told Jimmy Gasson, my team sergeant, I go, Jimmy, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the Ar- army. He goes, What do you mean you're gonna leave the army? I said, I'm gonna go be a PJ. And he goes, Your family, you can't leave. I go, man, I'm bored to death here. We're not doing anything, you know? And so uh, so I left and uh, I had my orders for E8. I mean, I had my E8, you know, stripe, but you had to keep it for so long, you know, before you can actually keep it for a while. And so... Th- it was like within the week and they just tore it up. So I left, I got a nasty letter from the army saying under the, they wouldn't even give me a discharge. They gave me a nasty gram. So, so I I went on down to the pararescue and talked to a guy named Al Al Richmond, who was in charge of the, of the group. He was an E8. So there's no way I could go into the same rank as him anyway. So uh, I dropped down the E6 tech sergeant and they tested me. I made some jumps with them and all kinds of stuff with them. Did my scuba jumps with them too. And then uh, went ahead and uh, went down to P.J. school. So I finished P.J. school. They, they dropped me on my, PGA, my uh, um, scuba jumps down there. They said I hit the door and I go, no, I didn't. <laughs> so, but they, they bumped me out and I found out it was mainly because they have these Air Force Now films and they didn't want an old fart like me in there. Get, you know, on the Air Force now, they wanted young, young guys, and these were all young guys. You know, so I had to wait for the next class to come through. Then I went out, made my jump, scoop, my pair of scuba jumps with them, get
0: and then the I door. Jump-
1: <laughs> yeah, then I get in the water. I get in the water and just say, "Boy, you left that door ten feet." And I go, "Come on," <laughs> I said. You can How can you jump out of a door with like hundred and twenty pounds on you? You know, and try to pick pick up a hundred and twenty pound weight and jump and see how high you can jump. You know, so yeah, so uh, that's why PJ's got to be really strong. And I was pretty strong back then. So but anyway, so I finished PJ school, went back to the unit and did a bunch of you know missions with them, the hoist missions. I did a couple of jump missions and stuff like that. I don't know if you want me to get into those, but
0: yeah, I, I do actually want to get into that, but uh just you you said something that actually um registered to me. So I want to do a little segue, then we'll come back. Um because the one thing that I thought was super interesting is the fact that um you were pretty into gymnastics
1: uh yeah i was a gymnast in high school
0: yeah kind of interesting because it, that doesn't seem like it would be a popular you know it'd be baseball or football you know i mean that's kind of like that's the american way right well i was raised
1: in the mountains i didn't know anything about team sports
0: e- yeah so even up there it really wasn't uh big yeah, focus on no. that okay. i
1: tried i joined little league one time and um i got you know i got hit in the face with a baseball batter. Thing. <laughs> I don't know. It, um, you know, I just, nobody, for wanted you? Me, yeah, nobody wanted me on their team. Cause I didn't know anything. Right. I, couldn't even, I think, what is it? Nine guys on a baseball team. I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I probably knew more about cricket and soccer back then. Cause I'm from England. Right.
0: Right.
1: So, uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah, when I got in high school, they, the coach made me work out with weights for a year. And then I came through and then he had me and I was a parallel guard, uh, parallel bars and um, rings and uh, um, uh, ropes because they had ropes back then, but they took ropes out of gymnastics because it was a time thing and gymnastics is more points, not for time. So it's how fast you can climb the rope. Mm -hmm. So they took that out. They tried to give it to field and track, but track never had it. So they didn't want it. So, but um, anyway, I I lettered on parallel bars, but I lost my letter when I ran away from home. So, you know, quits high school. Right. So, um, um, but yeah, that's that's how I got into gymnastics.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, it sounds like you enjoyed it too. Like it spoke. Oh, to- I love
1: gymnastics. Yeah, yes. I loved it. Um, I remember one time it was. I remember one time when I was in jazz because there was this girl, Candy Bar was her name. I can't, I can't remember her real name, but we just called her Candy Bar. Her last name was Bar. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, she was sitting up against this wall and I'm on the rings and I'm trying to impress her, right? So I'm doing these German giants, you know, where you have to do them around, you have to dislocate your shoulder kind of thing, but your arms have got to be out further. Mm-hmm. And uh, my arms were too far in. Anyway, it my shoulder snapped, my hands hit like that. I felt let go. Oh, the rings. I hit the ground and the coach comes over and he's yelling at me. How many times have I told you don't do that unless you're being spotted? I'm going, I can't breathe, coach. Get the oxygen. I'm laying there, you know, because it knocked the air out of me. It was so hilarious. And everybody's laughing at me. Jeannie oh, it was Jeannie Bard. Jeannie was her first name. So Jeannie got up and walked out. I've, I was so embarrassed.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I, I thought that story was going to end with and she came over and helped you out and <laughs> No, carry you.
1: <laughs> yeah, we all called her Candy Bar, but it was Genie Bar.
0: Every good story starts. with trying to impress a girl. That, that's always, exactly. yeah, that's that, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. truth. Yeah. yeah, I've probably done more than more than one time screwed up
1: and embarrassed myself.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah, you, you have to, you have to try. You got to try, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> You
1: can't just walk up and say, "Hey, you want to go out to dinner or something?" You know, even today. But uh, no, yeah, up right now, the parallel
0: bars. That's it. Well,
1: you know, well, when you're a doctor, they kind of come out of the woodwork. They think they are rich. I keep telling us, "No, doctors aren't rich. They're just in debt."
0: Yeah. yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, that is true. You think they own that Mercedes and own that big house with
0: swimming pool? So no, they're in debt. Just part of the student loan. Tack it on. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. so now because I guess w- once you got into gymnastics, you would have been young, you know, like early teens yeah. and, and um, through the training that you would have done throughout your military career, then getting into pararescue. Um, like How much PT would you do? Like, was it done? Were you oh, kind of more responsible for it? Like for your own
1: PT? Or? Well, even, when, even when I was in Vietnam with the Navy, I did 200 pushups, 200 sit ups and 200 jumping jacks every day. Without fail, and and when I was in the navy, we had a, a mooring line. I hooked a mooring line about mm-hmm. twenty feet up in a tree, and I used to climb it anywhere from one to three times a day. So, but I kept myself in shape. Uh, I didn't know anything about pararescue back then or special forces until I started picking up green beanies on the road, you know, <laughs> hitchhiking. Um, but I didn't know how tough you had to be to be a you know a special forces back then. Uh, but I managed to make it through it, no problem. Um, when I was in pararescue, heck we, if we were in, in the, in the, uh, on the base, uh, I got up every morning, I ran five miles. We were stationed at Moffett field and I ran five miles around the air base every morning. And then I worked out on a universal gym until it was close to lunch. And then, um, then it, we'd take a shower and then we'd uh, go on down get a hamburger or something, come back. And then we'd grab some parachutes, go make some jumps Or we'd plan a trip like go rock climbing, ice climbing, uh, scuba diving, and if you know, like I remember one time I walked into the Chow Hall over there, and I just said, "Hey, who needs crosswater navigation?" And a couple of guys say, "Well, I'm coming too." I said, "Okay, we need a navigator." And then we had uh, Padula, we called him Pud. Pud was our navigator, so he would go with us. So we'd go to Hawaii and go do some scuba diving. And once you're diving, you got to stay there. You can't you can't leave the next day. You got to stay. Uh, on land for a day to get all the nitrogen out of your system before you go up in the airplane. So we stay there an extra day and stuff. So it was, being a PJ is the best job in the world. Man, I tell you what. I was just
0: going to say, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> oh, it is
1: freaking awesome. I mean, you know, they just had the pararescue reunion. I couldn't get out there. I got too much going on here in the house and everything else going on, but I couldn't get out there. They have it every other year, but they got a mini reunion in between. So I, hopefully I'll make the mini one. But uh, you wouldn't believe, they they send teams in. Mm. They send a team in from each pararescue group. And there's probably less than like five or 600 PJs in the world at any given time. Mm. You know, there's a very small group, but they're highly trained. In fact, you know, when they did that thing with, um, when they went, what was their name? That The girl that was taken by the Taliban, uh, the young girl, uh, and they went in and got her out. The Navy SEALs went in.
0: I don't remember the name, but I... I... You know, I'm, I'm talking about what you're talking. Yeah, it sounds familiar.
1: Yeah. Um, her name's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, those guys you see working on her were PJs. Mm. They, they were attached to the Navy SEALs. And a Delta will have the same thing. They'll have uh, PJs attached to Delta and CAG and those groups. So, but um, yeah, because they're highly trained into getting guys out. You know, the most highly trained paramedics are special forces medics. Mm-hmm. But they're not trained in the uh, extrication the way the other guys are the pjs right. are.
0: and so it's kind of a might be a bit of a dumb question but just for my own uh understanding so what what branch of the military is that associated with them
1: pararescues air force
0: okay so that's air okay so it's a branch yeah. of the air force then.
1: i started the navy went in the army and then uh, then in special ops which is outside the army it's its own group and then i went into pararescue air force
0: not many people do that do they no <laughs> i'm like i'm thinking i'm like that sounds very uncommon you know
1: well when i was in the navy i was gonna i was gonna go be a navy seal but then that song then that song came out back then when i was in the navy it was udt underwater demolition teams
0: i was gonna say yeah so they did i think it was after vietnam they were known as the seals right
1: yeah they're pretty much known as seals but they had seals at that time yeah Uh, and back then the seals usually were fat and jolly yeah, They were like the old UDT guys and they became instructors, but boy, not anymore. Now those guys are really fit. Same as special forces. They're really fit. They're in good shape. PJ's the same way. I mean, you, you have to be in really good shape, but you can do it. Anybody can do it. If they put their mind to it and they work hard, they can get through it because that's what they want. They don't, they, if you, you can drop down and, and fall on the ground and, and, um, If the cadre goes to pick you up to say, don't touch me, I'll, I'll get up. I'll do it. I'll fin, I'll complete. Mm -hmm. And they'll let you do it. But as soon as you say, Oh, this is too hard for me. This is too, boy, you're out. You're out. You know, so you can't complain. You just got to keep going and anybody can do it. If you got the, you look at some of the PJs and some of the Navy SEALs and stuff, some of them are short and small guys, Mm -hmm. but they actually make it through because they've got what it takes. You know, they won't quit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we had a guy, his name was Ruff. And uh, when Ruff was at uh, C- CCC with us, he was um, a one zero of one. I was going to do a parachute jump with him, but he wouldn't let me on his team to do it because his team didn't know me. Um, but uh, a parachute mission. And uh, anyway, he went to scuba school. And if you break the surface of the water, you're out. He drowned. Wow. He would not break the surface. He drowned. They went, got the hook, got him out of there, brought him back to life. And so when he finished the school they made him an instructor. <laughs> <laughs> as you do. <laughs> yeah, he said, "Hey, look, if I can do it, you can do it." <laughs> so that's just how it was, you know? So and and that's what they want. I remember when I was a PG, I got dropped for 1500 push-ups and as soon as they got I got up the second day when two, you know, the day after, I did 1000 the first day, 500 the next day. When I got, I got up they said you got to pull this done again and I said under the same circumstances yes I will and they just told me to get out of there that's what they wanted to hear
0: yeah
1: they didn't want to hear you going oh I'm so sorry sergeant I won't do this ever again I'm so sorry I'll I'll make sure I know the uniform code and everything and blah blah they, they, get out of here you wimp <laughs> you know
0: so <laughs> you, you had to do 1500 pushups for a uniform infraction yeah, what happened is I was in, I was
1: in charge. I was in charge of this group going through training group because you know, like I said, you know, they got me out of there for this Air Force Now film thing. Well, I was in charge of the group, and um so what happened was four of the guys didn't have their their jacket for their blues, you know, on base blues, and so I asked them, "What have you got?" And he said, "All we got is our flight jacket." I go go get it. So they put their flight jacket on with their blues. So I had all the guys in the front. I had a space, and I had the other four guys behind. So we're running to the school and everything, and we stop. And the cadre walks right up to him, and goes, "Um, "What are you doing? Wearing your flight jacket with the with your blues?" And the first thing out of his mouth was "Sword and drone." Said it was okay, sir. And I'm going, "Good Lord!"
0: Threw you under the bus immediately. Threw
1: me under the bus at our (laughs) feet.
0: They so didn't they, want to do the push-ups. They thought you would do the push-ups, dude.
1: Well, they just dismissed them all because we were going through medical then. They sent them to the classroom, and you had me in the office, and they said, drop 1,500 push-ups. And they're reading the whole uniform thing to me as I'm doing them. <laughs> 500 in the morning, 500 after lunch, and 500 the next morning. It was it was miserable. But I, I could do push-ups pretty easy.
0: In yeah, fact, so that, I, that gymnastics and uh, PT came exactly. in handy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When I was in um, the police department, in San Jose, I held the record for pushups. Finally, some guy beat me, beat what me. What was by, the
0: record? What was the record? Uh, I
1: did 126 pushups nonstop. As soon as you stop, as soon as you stop, you're done. You know, so, and you have to touch the hand, you know, they got the hand that you got to.
0: Oh hit, yeah. You. So those are, yeah, those are good, good reps. Yeah.
1: Good pushups. So I did 126 and, uh, and I broke the record. And then I think it was a few weeks later, a month later or something like that. Some guy beat me by, I think, three push push-ups. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so small margin, small margin. Yeah, small margin.
0: Yeah.
1: So, but um, it was, I was going to say on there too, there was something, um, oh, I can't remember what the heck it was. There was something that came up and I was going to say it, but oh, well.
0: Well, and I remember you were telling me, I had a note, it's not on this page of notes. I think it's on my notes or across the desk there. But uh, I remember you telling me, I'm not sure where this was, but there was a a guy, it might have been pararescue, for uh, pull-ups, because we were talking about pull-ups, and uh, he did 40 40 reps in 30 seconds?
1: Yeah, Glenn Glenn Bowman. He was a real (laughs) short, little spider-looking black guy. (laughs) Uh, Talking about small people getting through pararescue. He was a small guy, and uh, man, he was pushing himself down, pulling up and pushing down.
0: You'd have to. Yeah. For that speed.
1: Yeah. Unbelievable. He's a great guy. I saw him about four years ago at one of the reunions. Super nice guy.
0: So funny enough, I actually brought that up with my, um, I guess she's not really, she's more calisthenics than gymnastics, but she, she's a trainer that I'm working with. Um, Jess St. John actually, she was on the podcast a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I was, cause I, I, I'm not, um, like, I'm not like a huge guy, but, I'm six feet tall and I have like very long arms for mm-hmm. my body. And so I was, I brought this up with her. I'm like, okay, what would I have to do to be able to pull off uh 40 reps in 30 seconds? And she just kind of laughed at me. I'm like, no, no, no. this is, this is real. <laughs> How do we do this?
1: Overhand too. It was overhand.
0: Yeah. That's it. Right. <laughs> Cause I'm like, geez, just for my arms, they're so long. like you'd have to go super wide and, you know, get a little kipping action in there or something, but. Yeah, that'd yeah. be
1: a good one. Well, I remember when I was in the Navy, we had a guy that could do sit-ups like you wouldn't believe. And he was a chubby little guy. you had a little gut on him, you know. And uh, when he came close to payday and he was running out of money, he'd walk around and say, well, I said, I'll bet anybody here 100 bucks that I can do 1,000 sit-ups. Oh. And this guy would do like 1,300 sit-ups to make sure nobody would try to say, well, <laughs> I think you didn't count right or something. And and he just back and forth. He says after he did a couple of hundred of them, he didn't even feel it anymore. He just went back and forth. I actually did it. I watched him do it. I'm going, Whoa, <laughs> that's pretty friggin' good.
0: That's what's so interesting. Like just these, because even that you would think, okay, someone does uh, uh we'll call it we'll call it a thousand. <laughs> you know, a guy does a thousand sit ups. So you would think just ripped, you know, washboard yeah. abs, right? It's yeah, but it doesn't really equate you know the 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 um appearance doesn't equate to the function right that that's it's how he, that's why people bet him yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah because he didn't like, look like he could do it and i'm sure he had washboard abs but they were underneath, underneath. The- <laughs> <laughs> so but i suppose we could get into some of the missions i did as a pj
0: yeah i was going to say so that that segues nicely so um now what what's the training for well, okay, I guess two two different questions because you actually had a fair bit. It sounds like of experience with some of the training that they uh, pararescue would do by the time you rolled up, because you you know right. your lifetime you had all this experience and um, even growing up. Um, so, what was that like for you between showing up and then getting through the training?
1: Well. Pararescue guys go through, uh, they have to, they have an in doc training thing where they make sure they can actually pass everything. And then they go to Lackland Air Force Base and in Lackland, they call it Superman U. And that's where they build you up. I mean, you know, the Air Force, you can't do more than, I think, 10 push ups or something, but you don't do less than 50 push ups when you're in pararescue. And um, they would do, they would work them to death, you know, and if you can pass through Lackland, they you're 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 strong and then from there you go to jump school and from jump school you go to uh parachute school you know with the army i don't know if they have their, the air force has their own jump school now or not i think they have their own halo school now but they go for the halo and everything and then from there they go to kirkland and that's where they learn uh the aircraft you know like the uh well i don't know i don't know what they're using now but they i think they're still using the c-130s I think they got the UH 90s or 60s or something. I don't know. Uh, but when I was in, we had Hueys and we had H3s and H53s, the Jolly Greens. They had the Jolly Green, the oh, Super yeah. Jolly, and then the C-130s. So um, fun. <laughs> and you learn that. And also you learn rock climbing and, um, you know, rappelling and all that stuff. And you learn all your medical and, uh, and everything at, at uh, Kirkland. That's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So when I, I already went through, I went through free fall in, in, in the army, but um, my free fall was pretty much like skydiving, you know, halo today was totally different than the halo was back in Vietnam, you know, and now they're, they're using oxygen. We had little hoses and you just breathe, breathe on the hose. And then they open up the ramp and you just run out the back end, hold your breath. Cause it won't take long to go from 20,000 down to where, you know, 13,000 where you can start breathing. So, um, you know, normally, um, so I went through that and then I went through the scuba school when I was in the reserves and, um, and so I had all that in jump school and everything. I started skydiving when I was 17 and when I was stationed in the Navy at Litchfield Park in Arizona, I started skydiving and flying airplanes. I'm also a pilot. So, um, uh, so they just sent me straight to Kirkland and what they wanted, they wanted my background in combat because Pararescue Rescue needed more combat training. And they wanted me to go to McClellan, which was the Special Ops base at that time. But I stayed with the 129th and I said, I'd go active if you'll send me to the Philippines. And, um, cause it was the National Guard base. Uh, and they said, no, if you go active, we're sending you to McClellan for Special Ops. And I I was kind of tired of Special Ops for a while there. I mean, now I'd, I'd, I I should have said, yeah, you know, now it's at Eglin Air Force Base. But um, so I, yeah, I just went through uh, uh, Kirkland and then back to the 129th. And when I was at the 129th, I had, um, I was, I was in charge of the medical section. They, they put me there full time. So I was drawing the two, I was one of those double dippers. You know, I got my GS9 pay and I also got my active duty pay and I was active duty probably 350 days a year. You know, so I was active all the time. You can't get on the aircraft unless you're on active duty status. So it did that. And I was constantly going on missions and traveling around the world and doing rescues and stuff. So, but a couple of my rescues, my the first jump mission, uh, a guy named John Stevens and I made the first jump mission with the 129th. And, uh, and it's ARRS, Aerospace Rescue Recovery Service. And um, they flew us out about a thousand miles, maybe a little over a thousand miles. And we parachuted in, it was 32 foot seas. A thousand miles out into the Pacific. Yeah, there's about a 1, thousand, eleven hundred miles out in the middle <laughs> Pacific. So <laughs> we, we parachuted in, and it was thirty-two foot seas. I mean, the waves are like that. And uh, <clears throat> the guy had a uh, a, a ruptured, a pan, pan, uh, ruptured um, appendix. So, yeah, so he was blowing up like a balloon. So we had to get out there and help him get him out of that ship. So we parachuted in, and it, it was it was really nasty. I mean, uh, the waves, I mean, I'm coming down and, and looking up at the top of the water and I'm not in the you know the wave and I'm not in the water yet. And so what I did is I cut my parachute loose and we just let it sink. And then we swim with all that gear on. That's why you gotta be strong. So I grabbed, I waited for the highest peak of the wave and I'm looking for the little dinghy because the ship puts a dinghy in the water and then you swim to the dinghy. The dinghy will take you over to the ship and then you they get you in that way. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking for the dinghy and I start swimming over to it. And finally, I get to the dinghy and I'm waiting for it to come up and I grab the railing on it. When it came up, I could see all the way underneath it. And then when it went down, it kind of went down like that and I just rolled and fell right in it. <laughs> and uh, so finally, they couldn't get the motor running on the dinghy. So finally, they got that going. But in the meantime, they already picked up John Stevens, and but we're all getting sick, seasick like crazy. Even the merchant marines were getting seasick because it was so nasty, and it was winds were blowing and the friggin' vomits blowing all over us. Oh. It's horrible. Oh, it horrible! <laughs> so <clears throat> then they take us. So they finally get it running. And they take us over to the ship, and on the ship, it was one of these that was a hot, a ship that brings the Honda cars over had honda written on the side and it had they have a door in the middle of the of the ship and so they drop a, la- a rope ladder out so what you got to do is you got to wait for the highest wave and grab that ladder and then the the boat the dinghy just goes away real quick so you got to climb in there and then crawl in there. i'm climbing in and getting sick and i just imagine these guys looking at me going they came to help us yeah <laughs> them looking rough <laughs> yeah So then John comes over and he's coming for a wave. He grabs the ladder, doesn't get up the ladder fast enough. Another wave comes, the dinghy knocks him off the ladder and he falls into the boat. He did that twice before he finally got a high enough wave to get inside the boat. So finally we get up and we take care of the guy and and there's two C-130s. There's the one that we parachuted in from. The other C-130 is refueling the helicopters all the way out. Because, you know, a helicopter doesn't go any more than like 300 miles so but they 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 flew they refueled them all the way out there in the middle of the Pacific. And so they, uh, anyway, we get the guy ready. We put him in a Stokes litter. We got him wrapped up in a bag and everything and goggles and earmuffs and got him covered up and tape, you know, strapped in. And they haul him up into the helicopter and then they drop the ladder, you know, the, the penetrator and we get on that and then we go up. So we had the low level all the way to Cruise Bay, Oregon to get this guy. We already contacted the hospitals. They're ready to take care of him. But we had the low level; we couldn't go any more than a hundred feet off the water, you know, because, because of then, yeah, because of expansion, right? Yeah, if you go up any higher, it's going to make it worse on him. And he was he wanted us to cut his gut, you know. I was getting, <laughs> cut his gut. <laughs> oh, he was off. not doing well. <laughs> oh, he, the only thing that kept him alive was he was twenty-one years old. He was a little uh, Taiwan guy working on the ship. Jeez. So, but they got him to Coos Bay, Oregon, and uh, I'd love to get the film because the news crews were out there filming everything when we came in. And then from there, we flew on back to the base. And uh, then we had another jump mission. And um, I was in charge of this. Johnny was in charge of the last one. But I was in charge of the next mission. And I had a guy. um, um, Oh, oh, man, I want to mention his name, Andy. Andy. Oh, man, I can't think of his name. Anyway, he he was he was behind me. So we went ahead and we jumped in. It was nice seas. It was, the, the water was nice. It was nice and calm. So we jumped out, took care of that guy and we had him stabilized. So we just stayed on the ship and took it all the way to Hawaii. And uh, and they took care of it, but it was also a thousand miles out. And then we flew back in some general's little jet. He had this little jet. We flew back in that. And I called at the base and they said, no, I said, nobody's here. They're all at a Christmas party because it was Christmas time. So... They said just rent a car and come on down to the, you know, a cab or something. Come on down to the party. So with that, and when when I was on that, you know, I was going to jump without scuba gear because you know you can get hurt on scuba gear jumping with scuba gear. It's dangerous stuff. And well, how uh, heavy
0: is that gear? That must be a lot of gear.
1: Yeah, they're double tanks. They're they're, they're twin tanks. Yeah. You know, because your parachute has to stay stable. So there's right. two tanks. Then you got a raft, and then you got. Um, if you go on my Facebook, you can see pictures of it all. But we got a raft behind us. We've got a reserve parachute. We got the medical gear underneath the reserve parachute, and then we've got all this other gear on us. You know, like dart knife, uh, shark darts, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, but anyway, we got. But what happened when we were going out there? The commander of the base was the pilot, and he came on back to watch us. And he's looking at me. He goes, aren't you supposed to be using scuba tanks? I go. Yeah, but look at the water—so calm. We jump without scuba gear all the time. I said we will be fine. Well, if you're supposed to be jump, and I just blew up, and and I'm bad for this. I do that. I've got a bad mouth. I said, sir, I don't tell you how to fly this airplane. Don't you tell me how to jump out of it?
0: Oh, <laughs> Fifteen hundred push-ups. <laughs> and then I told him. I said, furthermore,
1: I can fly your airplane.
0: <laughs> I'm sure he took that really well. <laughs>
1: Well, he actually, he did. <laughs> so, so when we went to the party, I saw him at the party. and I walked up and I go, sir, I owe you an apology. He goes, what for? I said, for chewing your butt out on the airplane. Ah, don't worry about it. Forget it.
0: <laughs> he says, Okay, so he actually yeah, he did.
1: take it pretty well then. Yeah, yeah he did. Know. He took it really well. Well, I taught him how to scuba dive. We were in oh, Hawaii. Okay. And I, yeah, and I taught him how to scuba. So we were, we were close. Yeah, you had good rapport then. I mean. yeah. yeah, yeah. PJs are really close to the officers. They're really close to the officers. They work okay. well together. In fact, I made a jump one time and uh, I was getting ready to jump and I threw the. it was at night and I threw the streamers out and, and with the chem light and my buddy and I are looking at him and go, damn, that chem light's really bright. He goes, maybe it's one of those new intensity ones. So I get on the horn. And I go, Hey, what's our altitude? He goes 1500. I go, okay. So go ahead. We come back around, jump that shoot open. Boom. I'm on the ground. I mean, my shoot opened up like probably no more than 100 feet off the ground and I'm sitting there going whoa and the guy on the ground goes man you guys were pretty low and this is in the hills so we jumped here if we would have jumped over the hill we would have been gone you know but uh, I got on the horn I go hey what's our altitude and there's this pause and he goes 1500 msl mean sea level and we were in the hills so I don't know how high we were off the ground I'm just glad I didn't run into one of those hills. But uh, because they didn't have that little thing goes, you know, warning, warning. They didn't have those things back then. Now, you know, now everything is much better. But um, yeah, I told him, I said, forget it. You know, I came back to the base. He was waiting for us. We stopped and had a hamburger and a beer came on back to the base. He was waiting for us. He goes, man, I'm so sorry. I said, look, forget about it. I said, that's a that's a career killer right there just don't forget about it nothing happened he goes i can't take that chance i said sure you can nothing happened nothing happened we're we're all okay because i know i guarantee you you will never do that again yeah <laughs> so so the next morning i'm walking around and here comes our commander is another commander this time is colonel boone he's coming up and he goes hey jim how was your jump last night said it was cool He says, how did it go said no well, we did okay. We stopped, had a hamburger and a beer, and came back to the base. He goes, nothing happened. No. He goes, hmm, that's not what I heard. <laughs> I got to know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I The pilot went ahead. I mean, the pilot told the colonel. He told the colonel, and I'm gone, look, he's never going to do that again. He goes, yeah, but we had to break him. He busted him down from pilot to co-pilot, and mm. yeah, and you know, it was a career killer. So, anyway. So that was one of those. And then I had a few hoist missions, you know, you go out and you hoist down on a ship and get somebody and come back up on a hoist. When you fly out and you go on a hoist, you know, if you ever see helicopters flying at night, if you look at the rotor, you see that, that like static electricity on that rotor, you can see it look glows in the dark at night. So when you're going out at the ship, all that static electricity is picking up in the air. It wants to escape. So when you're going down that penetrator, when you're about six feet, your feet are six feet away from the deck, you want to jump off of it and land on the deck. And one time I didn't quite get down uh high enough off. I jumped too late. And that arced my from my foot down to the metal deck just arced. And man, I could feel it in my teeth. Man, that hurt. <laughs> oh <my laughs> All God. that electricity went right into my fillings. <laughs> So, but that was a guy that he was, he was on a, he was a merchant Marine and he was there with a bunch of young people and he was an old timer and he didn't really fit in. So he was drinking and taking medication and stuff, fell, hit his head. So we got him up and flew over to Chrissy Field outside of San Francisco there and just took him in the hospital, got him. So we had a bunch of those kind of missions. Um, Some of the close calls I had, I had a call one time where, uh bill thompson and i went out on a h3 we we're going out and we we're doing that we jump out of the helicopter in the water and the chopper comes back around picks you up we we're doing it at night so the chopper comes back around to pick us up and they drop flares out in the water at night so they can maintain where they are because you can't tell you even in the daytime if you look down you can't tell where you are because the the prop wash from the rotor follows you wherever you go so you can't tell if you're moving or not. And you can get vertigo real easy. Anyway, they, they dropped the penetrator down. Bill and I get up on it. And we're about halfway up to the helicopter. And the pilot got vertigo. I guess those the flares went down underneath the waves. And the waves came up and hit it. He got vertigo. And the chopper just dropped right down on top of us. We got down in the water. We just unhooked that sucker. We swam as far as we could underwater. Finally came up. And the chopper was in the water. But he was taken off. They can float. But he took off, went around, came back, and then he took us up one at a time. And, man, he just whipped us up so friggin' fast. <laughs> yeah, Sland i didn't want to do the it again. The helicopter. <laughs> so but hmm. other than that, we did a lot of climbing up in Yosemite, rock climbing and stuff. And we used to go snow skiing because we had to learn how to ski with sleds, sleds behind us. Yeah. So we did a lot of that kind of stuff as a PJ. And the government pays for all this, you know, for training. You, you go up there for, like, maybe five days, and you got to at least train at least two or three days. And the rest of the time you're off, you know, so you have a lot of fun. Being a PJ is the best job there is, man. I tell you, I'm getting
0: I, excited to listen to you. I'm like, this sounds good. It, it is.
1: <laughs> I bet in the army, I think I probably made, uh, I think probably 80 or 90 jumps in the army. Mm-hmm. When I was in, uh, the air force, I made over 600 jumps. Wow. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we jumped all the time, sometimes six times a day, you know, when we had to redo the shoots. Right. We just haul them out there in a truck and we just go up and down the helicopter, just jumping and having a great old
0: time. It's a lot of fun. And so when you guys go out on missions, uh, is it sort of like the idea, like a uh, first responders, like, you know, something happens and they call you guys and go, okay, we need you to, so you're kind of like, you don't know when you're going to get the call. It just, when you get it, you get it.
1: Yeah. Whoever's there at the base, because it was a national guard base, even though I was full time there, it was, um, Uh, usually it's the the guys that are there all the time because a lot of the weekend guys aren't there. But usually some of the guys will come in, they'll hang out for a week or so, do something. Like we'll go to the Philippines or Okinawa or Japan or someplace. Korea was a big place we used to go to. Um, So, but uh, yeah, if, if a call comes in, what they usually do is they go from Scott Air Force Base. I don't know where it is now, but that used to be the rescue headquarters. And I think it's in Ohio or someplace. I'm not sure. But they would um, call up there and they would get a maritime mission or something like that. You know, ships, it's we had one where the ship was sinking. Um, but they would call them. And then if it was close to the shore, then the Coast Guard would go get it. But the Coast Guard didn't have refueling capabilities to go out any further. So if it was any further, we'd go. But we had one one time where it was going to be another jump mission. And um, they, they, there was an explosion on the ship and some guys got burnt. So they wanted to go out there and get the guys uh, out of there. So as we're going out, they find out that the skipper of the ship pulled the plug on his own ship. He blew the plug on the ship. And I guess with the oil down on the bottom of there, it caught on fire. But um, so he was sinking the ship. Then all of a sudden, there was all these bales in the water. And then all of a sudden, all these little boats started coming to the ship. And all they had was like three law enforcement going out there. It was a drug dealer. They were hauling all these bales of drugs, you know? And so all these other boats, they got most of the stuff, but they got three of the boats and pulled them over and I guess took them wherever they do. And, uh, but the rest of them got away, but I wanted to jump in anyway. He goes, no, we can't let you jump in in case they got weapons. I don't care about weapons. What do you think? Of? I don't care about those thinking badges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, I wanted to go in anyway, but they wouldn't let us. So, I talked the pilot in the staying there, and we circled and watched, stay there until the ship sank. And it finally it just went down. And finally, the, just the bows ticking up went boop, it just went down. But it was really cool to watch the ship sink. It was a big ship, you know, probably, I don't know, 300 feet long, maybe bigger, maybe more than that, 400, 500 feet. It was a big tanker. Right. Jeez. So that was really kind of cool. That was uh, one of my favorite times to see watch a ship sink. I mean, I hate to see a ship sink. I would have loved to have had the ship, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of those things. Yeah. So let me see that. I can't think much else on. Um...
0: Well, and I was wondering as well. With uh, was it that you were working with NASA doing recoveries? Oh, yeah, I forgot all about those. Yeah, I worked with NASA for the
1: first three landings of the space shuttle.
0: And that was- so would, would that have been with pararescue or that's a separate?
1: No, no, that's rescue. Okay. Yeah. What happened is uh John Stevens and I were sitting there going, you know, we told our boss that, you know, Al, you know, those guys are going to need some kind of rescue system for when that shuttle comes in. Oh, we'll work on it. So we just irritated NASA telling them, Hey, we're here for you. You know, if you need us, call us up, we'll come. So finally they called and said, we're going to meet at white sands. If you want to come on down? So we did. So we flew on down the white, we had a plane fly us down the white sands and, um, and we worked with the astronauts. There was uh, three of the astronauts we worked with. It was Jim Bajan. Who was, they were all medical doctors. It was Jim Bajan. It was Anna Fisher, the first mother in space. And Rhea Seddon, who's um, also a medical doctor. And uh, I haven't met Jim Bajan since, but we hung out a lot back then because, you know, he's one of the guys, wanted to be with the guys. In fact, when he left the uh, astronaut program, he went into space and everything. But when he left astronaut program, he became the um, flight surgeon for the... Um, rescue guys up at um, like by Mount St. Helens up in Portland, Oregon, became the the flight surgeon for him. Um, But yeah, working with those guys, uh, we worked with them and uh, what they did is they'd have like, you know, the space shuttle is a glider, so it has to come in. And if they got brakes, if he's coming up too high, he can, he's got air brakes, he can pull up and drop it down and then drop them down again and they'll just take off and land. But if he's too short, he can't go any faster. So if that happens, then they got to bail out. The STS-1, 2, and 3 had ejection seats in them. There was just the two astronauts. It was uh, Engels and Truly. No, it was Engels and Truly was on STS-2. Um, Crippen and Young was STS-1. And STS-3 was Lausmar and Fullerton. And um, so anyway, what we did is we trained. And uh, I remember talking with... um, uh, John Young and John Young was uh, he'd be on the radio and he'd be, he'd be sitting there talk, and they're doing this all around the world at the same time. There's people all over the world in case they have to land in another country. So they, uh, he'd be on the radio and he'd be saying, Hey, I'm having problems. I'm having problems. I'm too short. I'm going to have to bail out. So they had to do a scenario where he bails out and we're a mode A contingency paramedic. So what happens is we fly over, we parachute in and they'll have a guy in a spacesuit on the ground with his parachute laying on the ground. And uh, we go in and take care of him. And the astronauts have to teach you how to take the guy out of the astronaut suit. You can't. Everybody wants to open up the face mask and talk to him. You can't do that. You got to break the wrist first. You take and unloose, take the glove off, and that relieves all the pressure in the suit. And then you can open up the mask and talk to him. And then you can ask him where he's hurting and feel his, you know, check about me. He has no spinal injuries for an injection, that kind of thing. So, but, uh, I've met, uh, Anna Fisher again, I've met Ray, Sedden a bunch of times and, mm-hmm. um, and I've met Lousma, Lousma, uh, Lousma, uh, Jack Lousma. I've met him a few times too, probably about three or four times each. And, uh, but they're kind of cool. I think, actually, I think I might be meeting them again here. I think we've got a space fest coming up here in Tucson. They're usually there. I met Buzz Aldrin there and talked with him and, um, and some of the other guys, you know.
0: And uh, you, because you mentioned uh, Mount St. Helens, you actually were part of that rescue as well, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, we were in the rescue for Mount St. Helens. Um, what happened is, this guy in Portland, Oregon, those guys up there were being overworked, working around the clock. Right. So they needed some help. Some of, the, some of the guys from New York came out and then we came up from Moffitt and went up there and we were helping them. And I was flying around. I was actually looking for the sheriff's brother and anybody else we could find. But we couldn't we couldn't find anything. I mean that was really devastating. That that was I'd never seen anything like that. You know, we see those trees laying on the ground. Those trees are only fifty feet from where they were standing. Where you see there's nothing out there. All those trees were disintegrated. And if you look at the trees laying on the ground, they don't have any branches or tops to them. They look like telephone poles laying on the ground. <laughs> but they were disintegrated. Jeez. And as that like ten miles from the, the uh, the volcano, the base of the volcano. So it was just friggin' unbelievable. It was it was horrible. I mean, you, you fly over the rivers and all you see is these elk and deer and stuff in the water, you know, they got killed and floating in the water. A lot of the trees were floating down the rivers and blocking up everything. Uh, I mean, it looked like the moon. You see craters and they were from chunks of ice being blown down from the mountain and landing on all that ash. And uh, I designed some stable rigs and they rigged up a bunch of stable rigs for us. And I use those because the chopper can't get on the ground up there because of the, the ash. So we'd rappel down on the rope. And then when, if they had to get us back out again, then they'd drop the rope and we'd hook up to the stable rig and get out of there. They were better stable rigs than what we had over in Nam. They were pretty nice. So, but um, uh, let me see what else. Um, never found anybody there. But one of the interesting really? things, I saw a D8 cat a D eight cat or a D ten cat, you know, Caterpillar, and that thing was end over flipped, end over end six times from the blast. One of the f- interesting things I saw was there was some areas where they were drilling wells, and the well derrick sticking stayed up. It was still there. It was, really? it was, yeah, it was there. I guess they had the shaft down in the ground, and I guess it helped support it. But uh, it didn't get blown down or anything, or bent or anything. Was, I was, I was really surprised to see that. Um, but, yeah, that was pretty devastating. The guys in Oregon on the first day they found a bunch of people. There was um uh Dick Carter, we used to call him big Dick the Bagman, but dick uh, Dick went out and he found he found a whole family of people they were all they were all succumbed to the from the ash uh they were they were laying in the back some of the kids were in the back end of the pickup truck. The family was inside the pickup some were laying out on the ground but it was a big family and he went and got all them out. Um, But uh, other than that, no, we didn't, we didn't see anybody. We, I mean, it it was, was, they were gone, you know, they, I mean, they were, the the spirit lake, that was a huge lake. And that lake was half full of debris, just half full of mud and everything, you know, from that volcano. So it was, it was, it was a, it was pretty devastating when I looked at that and I'm going, whoa. I can't imagine the people that were close to that volcano. They were probably just disintegrated as well, you know, so really tragic.
0: Yeah. It's, it's like Hiroshima. Yeah. I was going to, it's almost like biblical, like where it's yes. just like devastating it. Like, uh, yeah, let's. <laughs> In
1: Hiroshima, you know, all you saw was shadows on a wall and the people just disintegrated. They're really tragic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's see what else is there.
0: Well, After- and so, and and when did you get out of parrot? Like, how long were you in pararescue for?
1: Uh, about a little over six years.
0: Okay, so pretty active. That's a very jam packed six years.
1: Yeah, four years in the navy, uh, ten years in the army, and um, and uh, six years in the air force. And I was going to stay in, but I got busted up parachuting. Actually, I got injured parachuting, and they checked my X rays and they said, "Do you ever hurt yourself before?" And I said, "No, well, I'm fine." <laughs> And he and I asked him why. And I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, uh, he goes, well, you got some old fractures. I go, fractures where? He goes, you fractured T7, you fractured L5, and you you sprung your pelvis open. You got I had a big spur in my SI joint. And uh I said, Oh. I said, I didn't know i broke anything, but I got thrown out of a helicopter about 25 feet, 30 feet, something like that over in Vietnam. And it I had neuropraxy. I I had a hard time breathing and it I had no feeling from the waist down. And it took me about an hour to get everything back, you no know, feeling. And uh, he goes, yeah. He goes, well, I'm taking you off jump status. And I go, no, no. So he took me off jump status and I couldn't fight it. So they gave me a medical and I got out. And that's when I went to school to be a doc. Actually, I went to chiropractic college first. And then from chiropractic college, I went and did a three-year residency in radiology out in St. Louis spent a lot of time at Melloncrod Institute of Radiology. And so, I mean, I had the best residency in radiology. So when I finished that, I came out to Tucson, opened up my own clinic, uh, opened up an MRI. I opened up a whole suite, MRI, CAT scan, everything. But I had a partner out of New Jersey. And um, then he started screwing me over on my fair share. So I had him buy me out. And um, then I left and went to work for Southwest Radiology and They worked me to death. I swear one day I did 276 cases and I just said, I said, I'm out. I retire. I quit. And I left and um, sold everything I had up in Tucson, came down to an airstrip. I had a house down on an airstrip where I had a hangar and I had my airplane in there. So I just went down there and lived and I finally sold that and then moved down here to Bisbee. And uh, after all that, I I, I started hunting for meteorites. And uh, going out in the desert, looking for meteorites and found quite a few. So, and that's what I do now is I sell meteorites. In fact, there's one laying on the ground right there, that black thing. Okay. (laughs) I'll get it and show it to you. (laughs) Yeah, that's it right there. This is called the Campo de Chiello.
0: It's 18 pounds. And so... Well, I guess two, two questions. Um, why chiropractics and then radiology and then uh, why meteorites?
1: <laughs> I always liked space. I always wanted to be an astronaut, but the closest I got was working with the astronauts. Right. <laughs> yeah, which is not bad. And um, I don't like giving people medication, drugs for every ache and pain and stuff. So I, I kind of stayed away from, I got I could have gotten into DO school and I kind of kicked myself. I should have um, and then got on the radiology that way. But, um, my flight surgeon was a DO and he was on the board for California for the osteopath, uh, group there. So I could have gotten in real easy with him. He told me to get, make sure I got in. Um, so I, I chose chiropractic because there's no drugs involved, Mm -hmm. but then I, I figured, boy, what a mistake that was because of, uh, So many chiropractors think they can read their own x-rays and they don't, they have no clue. They'd be terrified if they knew what they weren't seeing, you know, so, so I did that and um, I worked mainly with medical doctors. I read x-rays for a lot of medical doctors, a lot more than I did chiropractors. So, but there's a few chiropractors out there that are really smart. You know, there's some of them really, they, they took the time to learn and kept learning, you know, but. And I got on the case of the board, you know, because the board, you got to have continuing education. A lot of these guys are doing continuing education on billing and how to make more money and stuff, (laughs) instead of doing continuing education on, you know, pathology and stuff like that, you know? So, but to be a radiologist, you got to pretty much be a pathologist, you know? So I, I, I was a 4.0 in radiology and 4.0 in uh, pathology when I was in school. And, um, so I, I did that and uh, I still get called up to read x-rays. You know, every once in a while I've retired, but uh, people will call me up and say, hey, if you're in town, can you drop by and look at this film for me? And I do. They usually take me out to lunch or something. I don't charge them. So,
0: not that for a high school dropout, huh?
1: Yeah, not, not bad. I mean, you can do anything you want, you know, if you just put one foot in front of the other. And I told my kids the same thing. I said, you look, you said, no matter what you I said. If you want to be a librarian to be the best you can hmm. i said if you want to be a doctor be the best you can i says just give it all you got it's not about the money it's about doing a good job and doing it right you know and if you do it right everything else will fall into place it'll all be there you know so and my my son actually is the the top uh special agent for the attorney general of nevada <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's really cool. He's really, a. he's an excellent, he's a good kid. I'm so proud of him. Proud of my daughter too. You know, but they, um, my son was, a. he was in the police department. He was in the sheriff's department. He was in the state troopers department. Then he went up to, he, he was even in the um, uh, the gaming commission. To he was a special agent for the gaming commission in Nevada. And then he went and became a special agent for the attorney general. But he had all those schools behind him. You know, I think when he went to be a, in the police department in Carson city. I think it was, he, uh, he didn't, um, they didn't even send him to the Academy because <laughs> he had so much training under his belt, but he's really a good guy. And he loves being a teacher too. He wants to, he's thinking about being a teacher again. He did that first, but oh, okay. yeah, he, he's a, he's a really good, good kid. I'm really proud of him. Three great grandchildren. He's a great dad, better dad than I I was. I was always <laughs> traveling around the world. <laughs> But yeah, he's a good dad and I got three great grandchildren. They're awesome.
0: And so kind of like when you look back at, uh, you know, obviously we're joking about, you know, being a high school dropout and whatnot. Like, do, do, do you kind of look back and like scratch your head a little bit and go like, wow, this is not bad, you know?
1: Um. Yeah, well, I find out that, you know, all you got to do is find an avenue. You just find yeah. the avenue and just go for it and don't give up. Just keep going. Um. I just never gave up. Uh. Yeah, when I ran away from home, you know, well, when I ran away from home, I wasn't making it on my own. You know, I there, it was no place to take a shower or anything else. Uh, so as soon as I got old enough, I joined the, the Navy. And the Navy gave me my, gave me, I took my GED in the Navy. I took, here's one for you. I took speed reading from the Evelyn Wood speed reading course.
0: You know who she is? Evelyn Wood speed reading course I took a look it up that sounds because I'm actually into speed reading which is interesting so I'm like oh I gotta have to look into this
1: well I took it from Evelyn Wood herself (laughs) so and so I did that and a whole time I was in the military I went to school um when I was in Vietnam I took out the uh master's course of conservation it was a uh Training by mail, you know, you get to fill out these courses and you mail them in and they send them back to you. I did that the whole time I was in the Navy over in Vietnam. I finished that. And um, when I was in the uh, in the Army, I didn't do too much uh, education that way. I did a lot of reading. But uh, when I was in the Air Force, I took courses out with the College of the Air Force. And got I got a couple of degrees from them. So I don't even know how many degrees I got. But I took it from them, and um, that helped me a lot. One of the things that helped me is I got one in in rescue, which is crazy. I got a, I got a rescue and survival. And what got me over that hump real easy was that I was a pilot. I get a lot of credits for being a pilot. So, and so I, I still do all that crazy stuff, and uh, I still I still to this day learn as much as I can. You know, and in fact. I usually sit around at night and watch uh, aviation videos, you know, to radio, working with the radio, because there's so much to know on those maps. And uh, so I still train myself in that. Um, I train myself in um, heck everything, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Meteorites, I still, because there's a lot to learn about meteorites. I still study a lot of that. I'm going to probably start getting out of the meteorite business, though, because there's too many people involved with it, and you're not getting your price anymore. The thing to do would be go to Morocco and just buy them them wholesale over there, because you get a really low wholesale price. Bring them back to the States and just sell them wholesale here, and you could probably double your money, at least make 25% profit. So that's the way to go.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what's interesting about your story, too, because obviously... It, you know, we if you compare the beginning to now, it it's kind of hard to, how did that connection happen? But, you know, as we've gone through it, it actually does make sense because it was, it was always just sort of this progression. There's always that progression forward and, you know, it takes, you know, so, but that's life, right? You know, it's these offshoots and, oh, a surprise here, new update here and things change and you just kind of got to go with it. Uh, but that, that is what's so interesting about it is just the fact that no it actually when you follow the path it actually does make sense as to how you end up here you know yeah the other thing i gotta finish
1: my books once i finish my books i'm gonna start doing vlogs like like what you're doing yeah you know because i figure if you get you get enough people watching them and stuff like that you start making uh, profit out of it Mm -hmm. and i know some people that are making a lot of money on it look at jocko willing my gosh he's probably making a ton of money with it
0: yeah, I, I I figure he's doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I figure he's doing. He's got a good little setup there. Yeah. I hope he gets a little kickback to tilt. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, you know, that is what's interesting with Jocko, too, because um, I, I don't know if we mentioned it the last time, but um, SOGCAST, so S O G C A S T, um, hosted by John Stryker Meyer, who, you know, was on, on this podcast a few times. Um, yeah. Just the fact that, you know, you reach a point where, you know, you can start branching out and then you have, you know, like almost like a network, you can establish your own network. And then I know he's got like the clothing thing going. So, you know, it's one of those things, right? You get involved with one thing and seems to go well. And then, you know, the tentacles spread, right? You know, you start getting involved with other things.
1: Well, I do a lot of selling on eBay and I tell you what, eBay is just ripping people off. So I'm, <laughs> I gosh, they, they want too much for what they're doing. So I remember years ago when I used to sell on eBay, you know, they charge you an insert fee, and you know that was pretty much it. Now they tell you you're gonna net like three hundred dollars out of a five hundred dollars sale, and then by the time it gets to your bank, you're missing another hundred dollars. You know, and they're making more money than you are because you know you got to pay it for wholesale and you got to sell for retail or something.
0: I'm going through that right now with meteorites. It's crazy. And what's, just out of curiosity, what is the, I mean, having seen what that looks like, I'm like, oh, I got to get me a few. That one's
1: on the, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to strip that one down and refinish it because it's got a couple of little rust spots on it, rust spots. Uh, That one I'm asking 6,000 for, but it's not a valuable meteorite. It's a Campo de Chiello out of Argentina and it came down in tons. So there's quite a bit of it. This one here, like this one here, I don't know if you can see it. That's, um, let me get it out of the bag. It'd be easier. This one is a part of the moon. <laughs> so there's that one. I don't know if it you can see it. Yeah. See if I can get it. Yeah. It's, um, that's about four hundred dollars. That and it's beat. part from the moon. <laughs> that's a part of the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happens? You know, when a, a meteor or an asteroid hits the moon, what happens is it, um, it creates a splash and then the moon's surface goes back up and with their their low gravitational pull, it just goes right out in the space. So when it goes out in the space, what happens it floats around out there until it gets pulled by the earth, uh, gravitational pull of the earth and then it comes back down and it lands here and then somebody, usually nomads or somebody will find them. Like in the Sierra Desert, if, you can pick them up real easy in the Sahara Desert. You, all you do is see sand, and all of a sudden you see rocks, and they're usually meteorites,
0: hmm.
1: same with like uh, Antarctica Antarctica. the guys go down there, and it's nothing but a sh- snow field all of a sudden you see a rock sitting on top, and it's usually a meteorite
0: and I guess where you are in Arizona, that must be pretty pretty decent for you there as well, right?
1: Yeah, I've probably found a few hundred of them out here um but usually they're ones that aren't worth too much um Uh, Heck, I think I've probably found meteorites in about five different strewn fields. The biggest one is called Franconia, and it's up in northern Arizona. And uh, I found one about yay big up there. And I call it the Delaney Stone after my granddaughter. In fact, I'm going to give it to my granddaughter this uh, next couple of weeks and let her have it. So my son said he'll make sure she doesn't throw it in her toy box.
0: Yeah. (laughs) throw it outside somewhere yeah but she's she's she's
1: older now and uh, she's a dancer she loves ballet and stuff you know loves doing plays i don't know she might go on and become a an actress in plays or something i don't know but she's really a good girl
0: that's awesome well and i guess and and when you head down to uh or when we i guess i can say that when we head down to uh vegas you'd be able to uh make the rounds and visit everybody and do all that yeah
1: yeah uh yeah I'm I'm going to go see my kids first then come back down to Vegas but there's a lot of meteorites in uh, in Nevada as well. Mm-hmm. I've thought about just buying a little helicopter and just uh flying around and landing out like on the top of ta- plateaus right because the top of plateau is old terra that's like original earth and uh, if there's any meteorites you're going to find them up there so that would be really cool yeah. And some of them like the Franconia came down in tons as well. Came, well, I wouldn't shouldn't say tons, it came down in hundreds of pounds of uh stuff came down there. I mean, there's a lot of it. The biggest one I've seen was 60 pounds. It was <laughs> you know, came down and broke in three pieces, and the guy glued it all back together again. I think it's in a museum or something.
0: Yeah, well. Oh. Pretty exciting stuff i mean it sounds pretty interesting i just think it's so funny like when we go through the whole thing and you know military pararescue and then meteorites oh that's so cool <laughs> well
1: you know i want to get in the books and get into the videography thing i want to get back into fly fishing i want to i'm, I'm toying with the idea of moving to tennessee um okay. you know just uh west of um pigeon forge or uh, gatlinburg area they got some awesome restaurants out there, and uh, yeah, Tennessee's
0: gr- good. Tennessee's got some good food out there, yeah.
1: Yeah, and they got some great streams for trout fishing. If you get up in the hills. The one place I'm looking at the um, the river, the lake there doesn't—they don't have any trout in the lake. And I'm going, oh man, you know. So, <laughs> but I want to get back in the streams, and but I might have to go to Montana. You know, take a trip up to Montana do some fly fishing up there or something. Mm-hmm. Northern New Mexico is pretty good too. For fishing
0: okay yeah so you got options oh yeah yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah i want to get out and do something i'm getting not getting any younger i'm 77 so i'm not getting any younger that's so it. yeah i just act young and feel young <laughs> that's
0: right that's that's the key to it though yeah yeah and uh kind of before we uh wrap up i think it's uh i don't know if we mentioned it the last time but um at the upcoming soar um special operations reunion uh, you're getting your, th- it's 35-year pin? 35 years with, with uh, Special Ops. I didn't know they existed.
1: Right. so <laughs> so long to get in there. I've been with the Special Forces Association probably a little over 40 years. Yeah. Never been to one of their meetings. <laughs> Never been to one.
0: <laughs> well, you still got time.
1: Yeah. Maybe, you know, if I, depend, maybe if I go to Tennessee that, you know, I probably go to cause they usually have them out on the East coast. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it. it it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. And I, I know for myself, I'm very excited to be, uh, heading down there just because, uh, I get to meet all you guys in person. You know, obviously it's cool to be able to do this. And I'm very fortunate to be able to have technology that allows us to do this, but, uh, I think it'll be very fun just to, uh, you know, shake a hand and, you know, say hi and all that, you know, be fun. Yeah. Meet some of the guys. Yeah, a lot of them are, we're man,
1: like, gosh, we just lost Billy. Wah. Yeah. Uh, my gosh, we're losing so many guys. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're dropping like fleas. So, but at least tilt will be there. I'm sure tilt's going to be there. He's been pretty busy lately. So
0: yeah, he but, seems it. Yeah. He seems it. I yeah. don't think
1: he's even signed up yet. So I haven't signed up either, but they know I'm coming.
0: That's it. Yeah. yeah well, to- and, and that's also why, too, it, it's really good to be able to do these just because, yeah, for, for that reason, like there's um, uh, some names in the last few years uh, of guys who are gone. And I'm like, man, that would have been a good, good guy to talk to, you know, so it's yeah. it's important to do these.
1: Yeah. Uh, General uh, Singlob. Um, heck, yeah, I think we lost him this year. He was 100 he well, had
0: a good one. that's pretty good
1: um, yeah um but man i it, it really hurts to see these guys just passing on you know they're i mean billy wall made a free fall with me over in um oh okay yeah he made a free fall with me told me to keep my feet together <laughs> <laughs> you know when i told you i got injured in the navy when the truck rolled on me yeah yeah it, my my foot my foot goes like this So when I'm free falling, (laughs) it was causing me to go swim, you know, and he said, put your feet together. So I put my feet together and just went like that. Sure enough, it worked. Straight as an arrow.
0: That's it. Yeah.
1: But after that, I finally was able to compensate for it and I didn't have any problems. So good advice paid off. Yeah. 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 He's a good guy. I like Billy. He's called me Carrot Top. (laughs) One of the things I've done throughout my life is I've made an awful lot of friends around the world and uh, I keep in touch with them all the time. You know, just yesterday I was talking to one of my buddies in uh, Madrid, Spain. Uh, he does vlogs. I met him through doing vlogs. Okay. His name is uh, Jim James Blick, and he does uh, like food tours in in and uh, all all over Spain. So, but he he he's really a cool guy. He's from um, New Zealand, and his wife's there from Spain. A real nice guy. Um, but I got a good buddy in China. He's a meteorite guy. Him and I chat back and forth. He lives in Beijing. He wants to move to this country. (laughs) He went to University of Miami.
0: Oh, hey, not bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he speaks good English and he wants to come over here. It's really hard for him. Probably, you know, it's hard to get out of China. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Yeah, uh, that's, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: I got another buddy from San Francisco. He's in San Francisco. Him and I run underwater underwater operations together. And he's, uh, he's over in China right now, him and his wife. And they're just hanging. He told me the other day, he says, he went to this little town. I can't remember the name, but they sell squab there. Okay. He's uh he goes, yeah, I'm going to eat 28 of those squab. If I have to, he wants to fill up on squab, you know, which is pigeon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but he said it was so good. It was delicious. <laughs> so now he's, I think he said in a i think he said, in like uh twenty days or thirty days in about a month he's gonna him and his wife are gonna go on a cruise, they're gonna pick up a cruise ship someplace, and you know he's very wealthy, yeah, he was in the san francisco p d You'd be shocked what those guys' retirement pay is
0: well they, if, if they're seeing what they see in San Francisco, maybe I wouldn't be too surprised. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't always like that. He retired years ago, but I was in the San Jose PD at the same time he joined. Okay. His retirement pays over $8,000 a month.
0: Oh, that's not bad.
1: No, it's not bad at all. And he was a miser with his money. He kept all his money hidden, you know, and just, well, every time we went someplace, you know, we had to buy him a drink or something. But he was, he's really a cool guy. Real nice guy. I, I mean, I think the world of him. So, but yeah, my old diving team, man, I think there's only about four or five guys left out of the 12. So, but yeah, they're all getting sick and passing on.
0: Right. Yeah. It's sad. Well, and and, you know, and that's why when you get opportunities like this, you got to take them, right?
1: Yeah. You know, stay in touch with your friends. My gosh, don't, don't give up on them. You know, don't, Mm You know, I, I keep in touch with all my friends, even my childhood friends, even when I was in high school, I keep in touch with all my buddies in high school. Thanks. Thanks to Facebook.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, and you know, and it's interesting because uh, like the, I was chatting with my friend yesterday and we we're kind of uh, going down this this route as well. And because I'm not very I'm not very good at that, um, although I you know, I not to make excuses, but with, you know, the stuff that I'm training for and uh you know it's uh and i'm a kind of an obsessive guy so i i i go i go into the cave and i just sort of do my work in the cave but you know when you when you finish and you reemerge um it's kind of crappy because that's uh you know you miss out on things or or you're maybe not as attentive as you should be and so it's interesting like listening to you talk about that where i'm like Oh, no i really should make more of an effort you know because it's you know it's just it's A good thing to do, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to maintain those relationships, you get a lot out of them,
1: yeah. You know, one of my buddies in high school, he's living in uh, Italy, so he fills me in on Italy. Um, I remember, you know, the priest that is Father O'Keefe who signed for me to go into the navy, mm-hmm. and um, and when I came back from Vietnam, you know, like two years later, actually, it was over three years later when I left the navy, uh, or four years. And so what I did is I, I went over to the church and I saw this father out there. It was like a Catholic school as well. So I went over there and I I go, Father, I says, is um, Father O'Keefe around? And he looks at me and he goes, my son, where have you been? <laughs> Vietnam? <laughs> he goes, Father O'Keefe is back east. He's working in a you know his own parish and stuff back east and stuff. So I lost track of him. But uh, I'm sure he's now he's probably retired or died of old age, you know. <laughs> He'd be older than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he wasn't that much older, though. He was only, I think he was probably in his 20s when I was like 16. Okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, so yeah, I try to keep in touch with all my friends. The only thing I never got in touch with was my buddies in the Navy. Um, we just lost track of each other. I tried looking them up. I couldn't find him anywhere because I had a couple of friends in the Navy I stayed pretty tight with. But, um, you know, in my residency, I keep in touch with those guys. I keep in touch with my buddies out in St. Louis that I met when I met there. I used to hang out at a place called the West County Horseman's Club. Used to go dancing every uh, Friday, Saturday night. And um, I still studied really hard, though. You know, and um, so I still I play guitar. That's why if you notice, I got nails. You can see my. Oh, yeah, yeah yeah.
0: that's it. Yeah,
1: classical guitar. Right. So I, I do that and I got a couple of guitars sitting right there. But yeah. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> once for sale. The other one's a Gibson. I'm going to keep it. The other one's an Epiphone. I'm going to get rid of it. So, but yeah, I, I've, I, um I like playing, you know, but in my living room I got a classical guitar laying there on my couch. I just play that when I'm watching TV.
0: So Yeah, that's pretty much my move too. I got my guitar. I got my stack of guitars in front of me behind the computer here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? Oh, I got six. I got, oh, a lot.
1: I used to have eight. Hey, that's
0: not bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think I'm down to six now.
0: Yeah. I would have, more. it's, it's a disease buying guitars. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I had a 1935 Gibson, um,
1: acoustic. I thought it was an L3, but somebody told me it was like an L77 or something. I don't know. But I sold it. I sold it. Um, let me see. Um, I've got another Gibson downstairs, electric, and I wanna get an old l g o you know that's an old cheap Gibson i wanna get yeah. one of those to knock around with um I didn't even know what my classical ones are out there uh I've got a um a real nice um uh flamenco guitar downstairs. I just picked up this Gibson here. it's a beautiful Gibson uh I just picked it up it was really sweet. Uh, I like the action on it better than that. uh, uh, The Epiphone? Epiphone, yeah. So I'm going to, I got the Epiphone on um, Reverb right now for sale. Yeah, I just been playing since I was 13. My first guitar was a National. It was a National Acoustic. And they went in with Fender. I wish I had it now. It's worth a lot of money now. um, And let me see what else. I used to have a Yamaha. Was that a, not a Yamaha. Maybe it was a Yamaha 12-string. And I got that. I can't. I don't think it's a Yamaha, but anyway, I got it. I traded a guy. Uh, I gave him the guitar for a car. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, for an old uh, Volvo, the one that looks like old '46 Ford. I gave it to. Him. And the interesting, it didn't have a dash. All the instruments were hanging on the wires underneath where the dash was supposed to be. And so I took it. The, this is when I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I needed a car to get home, so um, I traded him and I took it down to South Carolina. And I gave it to these guys to ask them, I said, to this garage, said, hey, can you put a dash in there for me? He goes, you you care what it looks like? I go, no, I just don't want the an- instrument swinging around on wires down there. He goes, yeah, we'll do that for you. And it was the Yarbrough brothers, the race car drivers. The or Yarbrough, they, those guys went ahead and put the dash in it for me. So when I got down to um, Douglas, Arizona, where my mom was living, I I sold it for like, I don't know, I, I don't know if I sold it or gave it away. I really don't remember, but I had orders to go to Vietnam. So I just took off and went to Vietnam. Right. And so when I was over there, I saved all my money and um, I just sold stuff that, I, you know, I gathered enemy weapons and stuff like that and sold them to all the rare echelon people that could make up stories. <laughs> I used to make enemy flags too. <laughs> I had this Vietnamese guy I used to make enemy flags and I'd beat him with a hammer and put mud on him, and get him dirty and put holes in him and. And I had this great story where I'd say, well, you know, um, these holes are from shrapnel and stuff from we had to go into a cave and get it out and blah, blah, blah. And I, I used to trade trade them for meat. I traded one for 36 cases of steak. Yeah, I <laughs> traded another one for boxes of milk. You know, the Navy had real milk. So I traded for that. And uh, I had one guy. One guy wanted to pay me a lot of money for it. And I go, no, no, I, I wouldn't. And we're trying to take off in the Jeep and he's running after us. I'll give you $76, $75. That's all I got. I'm going, I stopped. And I said, look, it's fake. I made it. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> so, But we used to do that. And then I remember I used to get weapons and trade them for chain link fence to put around my bunkers. Trade them for concrete to put mixed with the sand for the sandbags uh, when I had my outpost.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, they tried to overrun my camp and, um, you know, I turned the, I turned them away. I don't know if I, I don't know if I told you that story.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah so yeah, I turned that, that, that away. And when I was at CCC, they got overrun one of was there too. And then Nuiti, that one that was overrun and I was reaction force to that, man, that was a, that was a mess. That was a tiny little camp, a little tiny. It was like maybe 60 meters across. And uh, 36 bodies laying there all blown apart and everything all over the place from that battle. It was, it was pretty nasty. So, but uh, yeah, I went there to reaction. They had guys laying in the wire. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, war is pretty horrible. It's pretty horrible. I'm very fortunate that I got back, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, when I was at CNC, you know, half of us were killed. 50% were killed at CNC. Um, Pretty much everybody was wounded. You know, I was wounded on three occasions. One occasion I got hit three times. So, but um, just very fortunate,
0: mm-hmm. you know, so. But life is unfortunate. fortunate to speak with you too, you know, worked out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it. But
1: uh, yeah, now, I'm amazed that people are so interested in all this stuff, you know, I,
0: I'm not though, you know, it's, it's cause I mean, I didn't know anything about Mac V Sog until I heard John on Jocko's podcast it was the first mm-hmm. time I ever really, you know, and I'm Canadian too. Right. So, I mean, Vietnam is not really, you know, it's, it's not really something that we even really think about. Um, but yeah, yeah then you, you hear that and I'm like, what, like what was happening, you know? And so, yeah, you know, then you just kind of start pulling the threads. Right. And you know, now it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's, uh, I don't know if you would go so far as to say mainstream, but it's certainly um, something that's you can start finding info. Well, I mean, you found me. Right. You know, so that's not bad. You know?
1: I found you through Tilt. I was watching Tilt's podcast, Right. Yeah. One of the you know, you know, I'm also a Canadian citizen. Yeah. My father was in Nova Scotia. Um, but my favorite group and I told my buddy, I said, man, if you can get me in, I'll I'll join. I'll join, you know, if they can get me in. And it's Princess Patricia's Light Infantry was Princess Patricia's Light Infantry or something like that. You familiar with that group? No, it's a it's a it's a well known it's a famous Canadian infantry group. Okay. Were they doing anything in World War Two by any chance? They might have. I I know. Uh, I know they're doing a lot. They did a lot in the sandbox because my buddy lost Hmm. both of his legs over there. He was uh, working with an ambassador and a suicide bomber ran his car into him. Two guys were killed. One, I think one guy lost an arm and he lost both of his legs. Right. And the ambassador was killed. Jeez. Yeah. So he's a cool guy. So he's a big spokesman for the veterans up there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Don't ask me, I can't think of his name right off. (laughs) Peter uh i can't think of his name right off you know when you want somebody's name to pop up as soon as we sign yeah, off Yeah,
0: as soon as you hang up yeah that's it yeah you'll remember of course it's always how it goes yeah that's how it goes yeah,
1: yeah. It, my biggest surprise like when you walk around a corner you bump into a friend you're going hey uh uh
0: you know like you just go blank <laughs> yeah and then as soon as you turn the corner you're like oh dave right yeah that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny that's it but um Well, heck, what else can we talk about to make it interesting? Well, I mean, I think I think we got I got everything I need. I think I got the went through everything from last time we got enough from today. So I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I think it and if I do end up using the video, then I'll let you know and send you copies of all that. And yeah, yeah, the video is pretty good. I'll push it, too, for you. Sure. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, the regular podcast, I don't usually push
1: those too much but the, the right. video ones are pretty cool. Yeah. I put them on my Facebook. I've got over 4,000 people on my Facebook. So. Oh, popular guy. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of people on there. <laughs> Not bad. Well, Between the meteorites and the military and the, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And the high school and the doctor thing and, or, you know, I get
0: so many. Yeah. I think we're good to, uh, I think we're good to wrap up. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jim. I, I really appreciate it. It was so much fun doing this. So, uh, I'm excited to get this uploaded and uh, I'm very excited to uh, see you pretty soon in uh, October. Yeah.
1: I'll see you. I'll see you there.
0: Have a good one. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.